Good afternoon and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in a discussion group on LinkedIn. This year on Bookends, we are focusing on the topic of employee engagement, and today we'll visit with Ira Shaleff, who has written the book, The Courageous Follower, Standing Up to and For Our Leaders. Following our interview today, you're invited to log into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss employee engagement issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our Bookends featured authors who are members of this group. You will also find a link to a recording of today's interview as well as previous interviews. Invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and I'd like to introduce Ira Shaleff. Uh, Ira joined the staff of the Congressional Management Foundation in 1982, a nonprofit group that studies management in Congress in congressional offices and offers training and consulting to improve practices. He served as the executive director of this organization for five years and is now the chairman of its board. This has given him insight into leader-follower dynamics in political life. He has also worked with legislators in developing democracies, helping them strengthen their legislative branches. In 1987, Ira teamed up with Carrie Gleason, the founder of the Institute of Business Technology, to open the U.S. branch of this international training and consulting organization. This company has a special niche, which is improving white-collar productivity at the level of individual and small groups within the organization. This experience has allowed Ira the opportunity to work with hundreds of leaders and followers in private and nonprofit sectors as they struggle with the practical elements of getting their jobs done in complex organizational settings. Much of Ira's work today is conducted through a consortium he founded in 1998 called Executive Coaching and Consulting Associates. This hand-picked group of diverse, highly talented men and women are a wonderful team of colleagues who continually learn from each other. They provide executive coaching and organizational development services individually, in pairs, or in teams matching their talents to clients' needs. In 2006, Ira co-hosted the first national conference on followership at Claremont University. The book, The Art of Followership, How Great Followers Create Great Leaders and Organizations, grew out of this conference. Ira co-edited this collection of scholarly and practitioner thought on the emerging field of followership. In 2008, Ira launched the Followership Learning Community under the auspices of the International Leadership Association, www.ila-net.org, which is the go-to site for updates in this field. For those who prefer a do-it-yourself approach to improve leader-follower dynamics, Ira recommends the video and trainer's guide, Courageous Followers, Courageous Leaders, New Relationships for Changing Times by CRM Films or www.crmlearning.com. We're pleased to have Ira with us. Just as the third edition of The Courageous Follower is being shipped to bookstores, to get a copy of The Courageous Follower or to connect personally with Ira, this is the publisher's website, which is www.bkconnection.com. Dot com or his personal website, which is www.courageousfollower.com. Ira Chaleff, welcome to Bookends. Thank you, Susan. It's great to have you with us today. 
Um, in the preface of your book, Courageous Follower, you highlight some personal and historical events that may have moved you to begin really starting to think kind of deeply about this topic. And perhaps they even facilitated your writing, you know, one of the very few works, at least one of the few works that I'm aware of on this uh, topical area. Can you uh, share some of the reflections from your preface with us, Ira? Well, you're right, Susan. When I first wrote The Courageous Follower, there was only one other book that I could find on the subject of followership. It was a very understudied field. In fact, if you did a search on the word followership, you wouldn't find anything. Spellcheck asked, did you mean fellowship? The word has been recognized. I'm delighted to say the field has changed significantly since then. The real topic that I am concerned with is the beneficial use of power. And again, you're right, this started very early in my life. I was born into a family that was deeply affected by the Holocaust in World War II. My grandmother lost all of her family except one cousin that she managed to get out of Nazi-controlled Europe. And I grew up with a deep impression of how leadership can go so terribly wrong and a question about how come whole nations could follow such destructive leadership. If we roll forward then to the early 90s, out of this interest, I was reading a book by M. Scott Peck. He's most noted for his book on uh, The Road Less Traveled. Another one of his books is called People of the Lie, and it's an examination of evil behavior. And in it, he took as one of his case examples the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam. And he asked the question, how could several hundred normal U.S. citizens engage in a massacre and a cover-up of that massacre? And one of the answers that he came up with uh, about this was that something seems to happen when we enter a relationship in, we, in which we are the follower and someone else is the leader, in which we are somewhat prone to abrogate our own ethical sense of responsibility for what the group does. And obviously that's a very dangerous state of affairs. And in the margin of the book, I actually wrote, it sounds like a book on followership is needed. And that began my journey for the next couple of years, looking into the topic and realizing how little existed on it. And I began to uh, formulate my own thoughts. And out of that, the first edition of the book was born. I can see the you know, the personal impact in your personal story. Uh, you know, what a way to channel... Um, you know, some of the the historical grief that your family must still feel, um, you know, channeling it in such a positive way with this work. On page one of your introduction, Ira, you suggest that many people, and I'm going to quote here, you say they have a visceral discomfort with the term follower. Boy, I certainly agree with that. Um, how can we frame the significance of this role, which is far more prevalent in, organization of, in organizations, of course, than the role of leadership? Our, our culture is enamored of leadership. Everyone is supposed to be a leader. 
no one is supposed to be a follower. Obviously, that condition cannot exist because if no one is following, then no one is effectively leading. So we can't honor the role of leader and disparage the role of follower. But why do we do this? Well, I think that one of the reasons for this is that we misconstrue leader and follower as personality types. Perhaps there's some truth to that. But in organizational life, leader and follower are roles. They're not personality types. For example, if you get a vice president of a large organization, she is obviously a leader and she is obviously a follower to the senior vice president or president to whom she reports. Right. So both of these are roles and in fact at almost every level of an organization we play both roles. And the, the challenge is how do we play these roles dynamically and effectively and not passively, which is the traditional connotation mm -hmm. of the word follower. In, in fact, I conceive of the role as a follower as the guarantor of the beneficial use of power by leaders. And therefore, it's almost a role of stewardship. Uh, I think leaders bring tremendous gifts to an organization, tremendous vision, tremendous energy. They help us do great things uh, within a, an organization's life. They can't at the same time, though, always guarantee that power won't distort their own sense of values, prerogatives, etc. And it's the people around them, closest to them, who I believe have part of their role to be the stewards of good leadership, of the beneficial use of power. So I, I see the role of follower as a tremendously contributory, dynamic, and honorable role. That's right. Uh, followers have a responsibility to keep power in check. I love it. Yes. Uh, in your first edition of The Courageous Follower, you outlined a model that described the five key behaviors of a courageous follower. Uh, in these later editions, um, you have enriched this model. Can you share this new material with us? Yes. The original model, in the original model, I grouped the many different behaviors that add up to courageous followership into five categories of behavior. I did this based on my own experience with many different kinds of groups and organizations. I'm pleased to say that at least four academics have since tested this model in their dissertations and have upheld the model and have in fact expanded our appreciation for how these behaviors work at different levels of organizations. The uh, the behaviors were all describing the behavior of the the person in the follower role. In the second edition of the book, which which was written because of in response to the traumatic failure of leadership in so many arenas, including our our business sector, Enron you know, being sort of the poster child for the misuse of power in the business sector, the scandals in in the Catholic Church, 
the the debacle of 9/11 in which followers tried to warn their superiors that people were taking flying lessons who didn't want to learn how to land a large commercial airline. All of these cried for a response, and in the second edition, without changing the model of courageous followership, I added a chapter on the courage to listen to followers. So this was now aimed at those in the leader role how did they make sure they paid sufficient attention to courageous followers? The third edition, which, as you say, is shipping as we talk, has added yet another chapter which responds to one more set of observations I have made in the last few years. The original model of courageous followership presumes that the follower can create a relationship with the leader that is supportive and where mutual trust is engendered, thereby creating a relationship in which the follower can speak truth to power and not be labeled as some sort of malcontent. In other words, the leader knows that the follower is personally supportive of him or her, and therefore, if they are speaking candidly, the leader needs to pay attention to that. The the new chapter in the third edition addresses the question, well, what if you can't form a relationship with senior leaders? What if they are five or six levels above you? What if they're on another continent? Does this mean that we can't perform the role of being a courageous follower? And the answer is unequivocally, no, it doesn't mean that, but we need different strategies for doing that. And that is what the... the new chapter in the current edition of the book examines, and it's called The Courage to Speak to the Hierarchy. Yeah, and that new information is, um, you know, truly information that is needed for these times, uh, Ira. Um, you, You mention also that it's more important for organizations now uh, to now encourage courageous follower behaviors. Um, why would you say this is? Well, it's, we're in a very interesting situation. While our large um, multinational organizations and very large government bureaucracies are hierarchical, our society is now networked. Anyone can be connected with almost anyone else. Right. And what happens now is that if an employee or member of a group cannot find channels within a hierarchical organization to effectively address their deep concerns about mission or about values, about violation of core values, for example, if they cannot find those channels internally, they will start discussing those issues externally through their networks. It's a very natural thing to do now. It's not a bad thing to do now, but from the organization's point of view, it's within the organization and the leadership's interest to create arenas in which those conversations first can happen internally so that the organization itself can work through the issues and have its own internal self-correcting mechanisms uh, deal with the issues before they 
they go into the wider public arena because conversations in the wider public arena are often not terribly constructive. Positive. There's not <laughs> we haven't yet developed an etiquette for how to have really robust un you know uncensored conversations but respectful. If you look in at any of these message threads, you'll see how um, wild they can get. Oh, yeah. So, and and not not in a in a particularly constructive way. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong about that for uh, a whole variety of topics. But when there's an organizational issue that needs addressing, I think it can be better addressed first internally if the forums are created and therefore I think leadership has much greater self-interest as well as organizational responsibility to make sure that the environment supports that free flow of conversation between all levels and all functions within an organization. Kind of shows you that people will find a way to be heard one way or another and certainly the internet has um, really amplified that opportunity so uh, hopefully organizations are paying attention to that chatter out there. Yes, uh, because the power relationships are really shifting because of that, and I think mm -hmm. that's a healthy thing. Yeah. You open the first chapter of the book with uh, an interesting sketch um, of the feeling that you have personally encountered when you have been in the presence of a top leader. But then you go on to describe the kind of behavior you desire from those who interact with you or approach you uh, when you're the person in the leadership role. Um, would you uh, share these reflections with us and tell us a little bit about what you mean by a true relationship with a leader? Well, I think that most people experience a somewhat different attitude or behavior when they're in the presence of very senior leaders. Depending on who we are, it can be range from being a little bit more anxious, awestruck, deferential. I think it's quite different for everyone, but we are all brought up to be respectful to authority in one way or another. Sometimes it kind of backfires and we wind up being um, almost congenitally disrespectful in retaliation to being sort of socialized to conform to authority. But authority relations are part and parcel of, let's call it, civilized uh, life. They have their value and they create problems because they tend to distort our relationships as human being to human being and professional to professional. In other words, rather than it just being an engineer talking to the president of a company and each bringing their professional expertise, the power differentials, the social expectations, the cultural expectations all produce a certain psychology that is not always helpful when we're trying to get candid exchange of information in the interest of solving problems and pursuing a mission. Um, for example, Microsoft has a very interesting set of competencies that it uh, asks its people to aspire to, and it has developmental programs to help them do so. 
one of the competencies is comfort around authority. And as in all competencies, it has different gradations of that competency. And at the highest level, there would be an ease at exchanging viewpoints with authority, even when those viewpoints are divergent from the ones held by those in authority, because it's understood that we are two professionals trying to come up with the, the best answers, as opposed to being somewhat intimidated by authority, and then perhaps either muting our concerns, soft-pedaling them, more, or maybe um, not even voicing them, instead voicing them uh, around the proverbial water cooler after we leave the conversation with authority. So a true relationship would be a relationship that understands that ultimately, once our titles are stripped away from us, we're both human beings mm-hmm. who are agreeing to serve whatever the mission of the group is within a shared set of values, core positive human values, and that we will each help the other to do so as best we can. That's an authentic relationship. It doesn't mean that there isn't legitimate uh, prerogatives that those in uh, the higher parts of the hierarchy have. They have legitimate prerogatives because they have certain responsibilities. But that should not enter into the way we comport ourselves in conversations, whether we're in the leader role or the follower role. That's the ideal that we're trying to achieve. Kind of a high-powered relationship idea that Microsoft has there. And I I don't know that I've run into that in in any other organization. It's it's kind of interesting, the recognition um, uh, of, of that and working towards that actively in their organization. You make a a rather bold statement regarding purpose um, when you say, uh, if the purpose is not clear and motivating, leaders and followers can only pursue their perceived self-interest. And I shuddered when I I read this, uh, but I completely agree. I wonder why so many organizations either miss really clearly defining purpose or Maybe they have a, a really a powerful, well-defined purpose, but they don't really effectively communicate it. What are your thoughts about this? Well, I, I think they make efforts to communicate it, but then there often tends to be a gap or a perceived gap between the talk and the walk. The purpose tends to get distorted in a number of ways, and, and so, do, so do values, and, and I think they're closely linked. We often see in any organization a conflict between the core values and the operating goals. For example, we see many mission statements as our people are our number one priority, care for our people. But when it comes down to the operational realities, actions are taken that are clearly putting quarterly profit first. There's always a tension between our aspirational core values and the drive for operational goals. In a healthy organization, that gap is not papered over with PR and thereby 
reducing the trust of the people within the organization that the leadership is really committed to the purpose as opposed to whatever their their bottom line is in, in for-profit organizations it let's call it the profit motive but it plays out as well in uh, non-profit organizations for example with the no child left behind we can see even though the purpose of the of this the the school the administration teacher student relationship is to give our children high quality education um oftentimes the operational goal the the demand uh, to make certain metrics or else we'll lose funding or else we'll lose our jobs etc clash with doing the right thing uh, that the purpose and the values uh, would suggest we do. So I believe that it's incumbent on leadership teams, and that includes the high-level followers and the senior leaders, to candidly examine these tensions and work them through authentically and come to a um, uh, an integration of both the needs to produce whatever it is is needed to keep the organization going, but not at the expense of our core values or the higher purpose to which the organization is dedicated. Yeah, great example with uh, No Child Left Behind. Uh, Ira, uh, you talked a, a little bit about uh, the role of follower a little earlier when we talked about keeping power in check. Um, I, I wanted to mention you, you also point out that this idea of being a follower is not synonymous with being a subordinate. Um, could you elaborate a little bit uh, on this? Well, very simply, uh, a subordinate may or may not want the leader to succeed. You know, we all know examples of people who actually go home every night and hope that their leader isn't there tomorrow. Uh, they may or may not care passionately about the organization. They may be there for other reasons of self-interest. Whereas a follower, in the truest sense, wants the organization to succeed, wants the leader to succeed, will do everything within their power to make that happen, including taking courageous stances and, and speaking candidly to the leadership about ways in which they see the leadership doing things that are counterproductive to the organization succeeding or to the leaders themselves succeeding. I'd like uh, if we could talk a little bit about power. Um, I'd like to read a, a strong statement from your book uh, where you say, the situation in which power appears to reside entirely with the leader is very dangerous for both the follower who can be ruined at the leader's whim and for the leader whose followers become psychophants uh, is it fantic? It's sycophantic, yeah. Sycophantic. I wasn't familiar with that. I was really glad you defined that in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about what this sycophantic behavior looks like and why it's so dangerous? Well, sycophants are the proverbial yes-men. Rather than honestly speaking from the truth as they see it, it may or may not be the truth, but the truth as they see it, they speak in terms of what they believe the leader wants to hear and doesn't want to hear. And there's a great danger in this. All human beings have certain blind spots. 
And we need to compensate for those blind spots by having others help us see what we may not be seeing. And in fact, I, I think that this is part of the trust that leaders put or should put into the people who surround them most closely. There's been a lot of work done, for example, on the subject of group think. And group think uh, uh, manifests itself in a way in which a group comes to think of itself as better than all the other groups with whom uh, who may have interest in the arena in which they're operating. And a certain hubris sets in. And each member of the group becomes more concerned with staying uh, a member and with protecting the image of the group than with uh, speaking their candid view. And there's a lot of documentation how great debacles occur because of this. Um, you can get a room of extremely, extremely smart men and women make terrible decisions, partly because of the dynamics of everybody trying to please the leader or stay within the consensus of the group. And although all groups like to think that they have robust, vigorous um, dialogue before making a decision, there's often um, parameters that you're implicitly not supposed to think or vocalize your thoughts outside of. This is the blind spot. And this is the, the great danger to very talented leaders and high-powered leaders if they uh, don't vigorously disrupt that kind of mentality and genuinely demonstrate that they want uh, the, the most candid perspective and communication. And again, leaders will say that, but they don't always really uh, comport themselves in ways that show they really mean it. And the people around them um, pick up the nonverbal cues. So we, um, we then get the sycophantic behavior, and that is really the polar opposite of courageous followership. Yeah, well, it certainly is. Well, to take this power and to actually exercise it and, and put it in, into play, you know, we, we do need to be courageous as followers, obviously. Um, and, and you talked a, a little bit about some of the high-profile stories. You alluded to some of those kinds of things a little bit um, earlier in the interview. It seems like we're, we see things are, you know, breaking in the news. Sometimes it seems like it's almost daily, you know, corruption in organizations and government and so forth. Uh, you know, as we see these kinds of stories, it, it seems at least to me that they're on the rise. Do do you feel that courage is increasing out there, you know, the ability to be a courageous follower? Or is it on the rise as well? Um, you know, what are your, your thoughts, and, and how can we develop what you refer to in your book as courage muscle? How can we get more of that? It's hard to quantify is courage increasing or not. In fact, I, I suspect that there is somewhat of a fluctuation in a poor economy when people retreat into the sense of a need of more safety, there may be less willingness to speak candidly if they feel that their livelihood is, is threatened. Uh, 
Having said that, I'm not sure that when we see examples exposed of, of corruption or malfeasance, that that's necessarily telling us that things are getting worse. It's just telling, it is telling us that things are being made known, and that's kind of a good, point. good. I mean, we have to assume that there will always be some degree of misuse of power, and therefore our institutions who are charged with the responsibility for ferreting that out and exposing it up, they're doing their jobs. That's that's a, a good sign in the society. It's societies that are really corrupt that you never read about that in the papers because you get shot if, if, if you try to publish it. Now, we see... We we see good examples and and, and poor examples. For, for example, let, let me go back to Enron for a moment. We all know about the high profile um, jail sentences that were given out because of the malfeasance at Enron. But what we fail to see is that about thirty accountants, lower level accountants, were indicted uh, in the mess. Why? Well. They were asked to just make a little adjustment to the numbers one month. Just we're you know we're in a little trouble this month. We'll make it up next month. And instead of taking an ethical stand right then and there, when asked to do what seemed to be um, the first act of um, untruth, they said, "Well, this is just a this is just a small request. We'll fix it next month." And then next month. They were asked to make a little bit larger adjustment to the numbers. So we always have ethics as a slippery slope, and we need to become alert to the, our first point of discomfort and take a stand at that point. Sometimes, uh, sometimes we don't get it right the first time, and we only develop the will to take the stand after things have gone on a little bit longer. Um, fair enough, as long as we take the stand. Just this week in the news, uh, last couple of weeks, we've seen some very um, courageous high-profile examples. The deputy head of the UN mission to Afghanistan refused to go along with the re official report that the elections were fair mm -hmm. and he held his ground that they were uh, that there was widespread fraud he lost his job mm -hmm. you know that can happen but he um his story got out into the news and as a result our um actions in relation to the Afghanistan elections changed they they are being rerun uh, the runoff is occurring, and who knows? That may change the course of history. Now, we're, we're all not in high-profile positions like that, but we, at some point in our lives, we can find ourselves at junctures where we need to take the courageous stand, even if we're alone. It's tough to do that. That's why courage is needed. And in my book, I, I examine the sources of courage, the nature of courage, where can we draw our courage from, because this is not risk-free activity, but neither is going along yeah. with um, malfeasance or corruption. They contain equal, if not greater, risks, even if it doesn't seem so at the time. How do we build our courage muscle? We do it by taking stands on small things, things that don't have large risks attendant to them, but that 
we can um, we, we can see a right versus wrong, and we we speak up, and usually with very little consequence to ourselves. That prepares us if we get to a bigger junction where there's something really important at stake, a core value. I I think we're more ready to assume that that kind of a role. But again, um, these are not risk-free choices, and I think people have to really think about who they are, what their sources of courage are, what their values are, and when they are willing to take a stand. Right. I've also always uh, believed, uh, Ira, that that a strength, when we take a strength that we have and we push it way out of balance, that it becomes a weakness. When you talk about this in your book, you use the word vice, and I, I think I like that even better as a way of describing what happens there. Can you discuss uh, this phenomena with us and, and share any examples um, that you've observed in your work? Well, I have to confess that I didn't think of this. Aristotle did. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> and it comes from Aristotle's concept of the golden mean. He observes that in any um, range of human behavior, that the virtue doesn't lie at either extreme, and rather the vice lies at either extreme, and the virtue tends to lie at what he calls the golden mean. So, for example, let's take the behavior of decisiveness. We all know that decisiveness is good. If we've ever worked for a manager who is indecisive, there's almost nothing worse. It, it's so frustrating when it takes weeks or months to make a decision that could be made today. So we know that the extreme of indecisiveness is not a virtue. But if we get a manager who is so decisive that once he or she makes up their mind, they don't want to be bothered with any additional data that you give them, we know that that's also very dangerous. So we can call that a vice as well. Uh, you know, uh, in terms of good leadership, it's, it's a vice. So the golden mean is an appropriate level of decisiveness. And for each set of human behaviors, Aristotle suggests there's a golden mean, and we each need to work to cultivate uh, that capacity within within ourselves. And the way we do it, now this isn't Aristotle necessarily talking, but uh, this is more the models that I do talk about in my workshop. The way we do it is by allowing in feedback. If we take an action and we allow in feedback, we can then gauge, am I being too decisive to the point where I'm being somewhat authoritarian? Am I being so indecisive that it's giving my people trouble? And I can keep correcting, and in fact, that's how growth often occurs. So we want to um, stay open and, in fact, uh, actively seek the feedback we need to keep finding the golden mean for ourselves in our actions. That's a, a great technique, and I think that, that some of that feedback is probably very readily available through the body language and unspoken language of people around us if we would only tune into it. And, and just watch for those subtle messages. I think people are helping us find those adjustment points more frequently than we might be willing to admit. That's very interesting. And when we see those subtle messages, 
being curious about them, inquiring. I, you know, I, you don't look fully comfortable with what I just said. Can you can you tell me more about that? Right, explore it. Good. Sometimes the power of formal leadership brings out the worst in us, and we've talked about a few of those kinds of examples. Can you discuss this? Uh, actually, you discuss this in a section of your book that you call Mature Relationships. What happens to some of us when uh, that leadership role is bestowed upon us, and, and how can followers help kind of wheel us back? If we wind up in life in a role that is perceived to have a significant amount of power, the social constraints that help us modulate our own behavior can be loosened. In other words, there's a part of us that are all at heart two-year-olds who, if we don't get our way, just want to scream until we get our way. It's that very willful part of ourselves. Well, as we grow up, we learn that that's not acceptable behavior. We learn how to negotiate, how to communicate, how to um, modulate our requests. And that's how we become functioning, productive, cooperative adults. Well, oddly enough, if we gain too much power, those uh, social constraints can start to loosen. And some of that immature willfulness starts to show itself. I do a lot of work in congressional offices. I think many members of Congress are very dedicated public servants. But some of those who I think are the most dedicated, I watch these social constraints loosen. And unfortunately, some of them become screamers in their office. And this is not helpful in terms of bringing out the best uh, in the staff who need to give them good policy advice, etc. And in my work, I find that the followers, those in the follower role, need to take a stand to interrupt this immature behavior. And people think, well, you you can't do that. But in fact, I've seen um, enough instances to demonstrate to me that you can. As long as you are truly doing your job well, you're respected by the leader, if the leader starts to display some of this immature behavior, you can say politely but resolutely, sir, ma'am, I see this is very important to you. I see that we have to resolve this to your satisfaction, but not while you're yelling like this. Let me give you a few moments to collect yourself, and then let's work this problem through. You would think that that would be the end of your career. It's not. Mm -hmm. Not if you are a valuable member of the team. And that's the kind of interaction that uh, is sometimes needed to restore the leader-follower relationship to one of two professional adults working for the same end. Bring it back to that adult-adult kind of uh, mode. And yes. Move on. You you mentioned um, that one of the courageous follower behaviors, and that's the courage to assume responsibility, is actually valued by leaders as much as all of the other behaviors combined. Could you say more about this, Ira? This is interesting. I didn't know this, but uh, one of the uh, more recent uh, dissertations that were done on the model, testing the model, the researcher 
was asking the question, do leaders value courageous follower behaviors? And she thought that the answer would be they don't, that they're a bit of a pain. Well, in fact, she found that leaders do value all of the behaviors, but the surprising data was that they value the courage to assume responsibility to act on one's initiative as much as all the others combined. And I, I think um, that is because this is where the, the, the continuum flows between followership and leadership. I think that they're seeing a degree of self-leadership emerge in the individual who can uh, assume this kind of responsibility and act on their own recognizance as long as they do so with good judgment. That That's the key. They have to understand uh, the limits of their uh, authority to act without consultation. But once they understand those, they act and they uh, assume accountability for the results of their actions, whether those are positive or not. And this becomes a team of very um, high-powered people who do not wait around to be told what to do, they understand the mission, they understand the strategy, they understand their mandate, and they act. That is what we all want. <laughs> you, you've created a, a model, Ira, to help us determine our own or others' followership style. Can you describe this model to us and tell us how it can help us gain more insight into our own behavior? Yes, it's easier to do this one visually, but let me just uh, do, do a quick uh, oral sketch. I took the two behaviors, the courage to support the leader or serve the leader, and the other behavior, the courage to challenge the leader's counterproductive policies or behaviors. And I made a four-quadrant uh, model out of those. And each box of the four-quadrant model has a different blend of uh, how strongly the support manifests and how strongly the willingness to speak up and question or challenge uh, uh, an action or behavior um, is manifesting. And out of those, um, I, I use this in my workshops and I find it's extremely helpful to people who don't come into the workshop with a language about followership style. They don't even know how to think about their followership style. So once you give them uh, a sense of the different styles that these t the, the blend of these two behaviors form, they can then assess where they at currently, where would they like to be at, and where is their growth direction. Now I'm excited to say that this model will be available online next month probably the latter part of November. For the first time, we're putting this um, online and people either using it in workshops or just for their own growth uh, will be able to uh, plug into this and do an electronic uh, answering the, the, the questions in the questionnaire and then get a 
feedback read on what their style is and what that means and uh, where their growth direction lies. And I also describe uh, more about these styles, of course, in, in the book itself. Well, that's a really exciting development. I didn't know you were working on that, but uh, you know, it's a great model in the book, and I was really intrigued by it. And um, you're, you're kind of segueing into uh, what I wanted to uh, do as we wrap up our time with you today. And, and that is, I was hoping, Ira, that you might be able to share um, you know, with the folks listening. Of course, we've only begun to touch on your work. There's so much more in this book, and I really hope folks will pick up a copy of the third edition and really dig into it because um, there's just so few, uh, there's there's really very little work on this, this topic out there, and you've really got quite a niche there. Congratulations to you um, um, in um, bringing it forward for us. Um, but I wondered, Ira, if, if you'd be willing, you know, you've already shared that you, you're going to be um, uh, creating an electronic um, uh, way for people to do this assessment. What else, you know, can folks tap into, and how can you support people that, you know, are really interested in this work? What ways can you be of service to organizations? Would you tell us just a little bit about what you can offer? Well, I, I uh, hope that the book. I, I'm I'm thrilled that the book is now in its third edition. This is it keeps finding its audience, 14 years later, and the audience is so wonderfully varied. Everything from churches to the military and everything in between because anywhere where there's a hierarchy people do struggle with the relationships between uh, leaders and followers and the use of uh, the beneficial use or abuse of power so the book itself has lots of um, suggested dialogue in it that I, I find people can go back to when they encounter specific situations and use so that's the most immediate self-help level. I conduct and have been conducting for years seminars and workshops of varying length on the topic. I love doing these. I find that most people who walk in the room, again, have not really thought about their role uh, as a follower. Often I'm doing this as part of a leadership seminar. And as soon as we start dialoguing, they realize, yes, we're playing both roles, and how I lead will um, be impacted in no small part by how I follow, because if I'm not a courageous follower, I may wind up in a, a position where I am sending things down uh, that are not so well advised from my leadership down to the people who are you know, reporting to me. So th that's always a, a very... Um, vital way to start uh, helping people formulate new ideas of how to do leader-follower relationships. As you mentioned at the top of this program, there's a, a video that organizations can get. It's really you know, meant for organizations, not for individuals. Mm -hmm. It's one of these training vi videos, so they're uh, a little bit costly for an individual, but not very costly for an organization. Mm -hmm. And it, they come with a leader uh, manual that describes uh, various ways in which uh, group discussions can be facilitated. I am also, for those who really take an interest in the subject of followership, again, you mentioned that through the International Leadership Association, we've started this followership community of learning. And a wiki 
on followership uh, studies and, and practice. It's become a really rich place for people who want to see what others are doing in the field. So I would and I would encourage anyone interested to just drop in on, on that and take a look at what's there and contribute uh, as well. And uh, I, of course, have my own uh, website again, as, as you discussed, and people can look at that. There are some articles that they may want to download from there and other links to sites that are related to the topic of courageous followership. That's great. Well, I certainly encourage uh, folks to, to check out the resources that have been described and in particular to uh, pick up a copy of your book, The Courageous Follower, as we've only begun to scratch the surface. And Ira, we really thank you for taking the time to be with us today to share your your excellent work and, and uh, your book, which really will help uh, to build employee engagement, of course, in the workplace. It's been great to have this time with you today, and I once again would encourage everybody to um, to visit Ira's website or the publisher's website if you are interested in this work. That the publisher's website once again is bkconnection.com, or Ira's personal website, which he was just referring to www.courageousfollower.com. Ira, I'm assuming that people, there's a contact me or something like that if they would wanted to email you a question um, directly? Well, the website is being redesigned as we talk, okay. so there's not a formal contact page there today, but uh, my email address is there, and there will be a contact me page okay. there very shortly. Good. As long as your email address is there, that works for, for most of us. Yes. Uh, so once again, I, I also wanted to remind everyone listening in that uh, you can join in this conversation on employee engagement, of course, by joining that group on LinkedIn we mentioned earlier, which is called Bookends the Discussion. And you can pose questions for Ira and other authors we've uh, interviewed on this program, and you can have discussions with your colleagues and peers. Um, you'll find a link to today's recording um, that will be posted there soon. We invite uh, invite you to come, and we also invite you to join your to um, encourage your friends to join the group and the discussion with us. So once again, thank you, Ira. We really appreciate your being with us today. It's been wonderful to have this time with you. Thank you, Susan, for the great service that you offer to your audience. Thanks so much. 